I love the act of drawing and art, but I loved the model on stage. And I don't know exactly what that model was feeling. They could be suffering with an eating disorder themselves and be on stage or be going through something traumatic, but they're on stage. And I just thought, wow, that seems like such a great way, like therapeutic way to, to break down all of the issues that you're, I'm, I was dealing with with my body. And I just thought it was so beautiful. So when I saw a job opening for a life model, I jumped on it immediately. And I had one place that would pay $15 an hour. And I had another another place where I would go and they would pay $25 an hour. And they were private artists from around town. And I really loved it. Even though I was insecure about so much of my body, I feel like it helped me be more in tune with it and like learn to love it. And it was always so exciting to get off the pedestal and go around to the camp on the other side and look at and see what the artist had made. Welcome to the Heal, Rise, Shine podcast, a show about womanhood, empowering women and celebrating each other. Each show, I will bring you a daily live warrior woman who stepped into her passion and light women like you and me, because we all have an amazing story to tell. Let's heal, rise and shine together. Hello, 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 lovely humans. Welcome back to the Heal, Rise, Shine podcast. I am Anna-Sophie Drost and I will be your host. Today's episode is an amazing one. <laughs> Oh my God, when I met Camille, I so connected to her life, her dreams and what she was saying. And Camille is someone who traveled around the world. She was always considered the black sheep in the family, but she didn't let that hold her back and trying to please everybody like I did because I did not go on a four years of travel because I wanted to please my parents to complete my education <laughs> and trying to build a somehow stable life. And now here I am with 32 and having enough of it at just going for it. Because if you don't do it in young age, you will do it in later age if that is really what is calling you and you're listening to it. So if you have that urge, if you have any urge to do anything, just do it. It won't go away. You will just suppress it. And once you start thinking about these things, they come up again. So just go for it. Just do it. Just like my guest today did it. Kamishi term for four years after college. And now she's living in New York, working as an artist She's having a very special kind of art and I will not say anything because <laughs> you will figure that out during the episode. But in this episode, we of course talk about long-term travel, about body issues and how art is very healing for that. How her experience with figure modeling has helped her especially to feel more powerful in her body. Are you intrigued already? That is wonderful because... First of all, head over to Instagram and follow Kami at kamihunt.art and follow the Heal Rise Shine podcast at Heal Rise Shine. Now, we are getting unconventional and just enjoy a wonderful episode about following your heart. Hello, 
Hey, Camille, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about it. Yes, me too. And here on the Heal Rise Shine podcast, we always love to dive right in. What does it mean to you to be a woman? For me, I don't think you can classify a woman always as to like what's underneath their garments. I sometimes think of a woman as being more like a verb. It's like an action. It's a way that you are, um, or even an adjective. Jackie Hill Perry made a quote a few years ago when she stepped on stage and made this amazing, or she did a, had a poem about women and she said it on stage. And part of the poem, she said, a woman is someone who is made up of nurture and everything comfortable. And it's why we feel so deep. It's why we cry so sudden, but emotions that make us women don't make us unstable. They make us necessary and nuanced at best. So I think being woman is almost like an action and it's, yeah, it's a way of being. It's not just, you know, your gender, your sex. So that is wonderful. I love that quote. That is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And would you consider yourself a feminist and why or why not? Yes, definitely. I think the word feminist or feminist, sometimes people put a negative connotation with it as someone who is a feminist could be extreme or radical or highly sensitive. Most of the time, people who think that haven't dissected the term of it really. And basically being a feminist, if you break it down in its most simple form is just women, you know, supporting women and fighting for equal rights and equal causes. And it's fighting off discrimination that women face in their daily life on all kinds of avenues, whether it be walking down the street with catcalling, or if it be being underpaid at your job. But being a feminist is fighting off stigmas and unjust laws that the ideology of men have created around women. And so we're not submissive beings, we're we're women. (laughs) So yeah, I definitely consider myself a feminist. Very cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. And let's take a little travel in time back. Yeah. Tell us about you. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? How did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Mobile, Alabama. I think most people from there refer to it as a city, but relative to other cities in America, it's pretty small. So I find myself often calling it a town, but it, I guess it'd be a very large town, but it's on the water. My childhood, I was raised going on boats and fishing and being around horses. And I had a, my childhood was amazing growing up, being able to like run in the woods when I wanted, being able to, you know, always have a body of water nearby that I could go play in. I had a very imaginative, imaginative childhood and mind that I lived in. And it was a great place for it. I went to school at a private Christian school. And it was a great school. It was sort of a university prep kind of school. Mobile itself, the town, is more, it's definitely conservative, more politically and religiously speaking. And you could see a lot of that in the school structure. And for me personally, growing up, I didn't I didn't realize that what I was living in was considered conservative. It was just life. It was just how you grew up. And that's fine. The older I got, the more I've reflected on that. But it was a good school. And just like any teenagers, by the time high school came around, you know, you're 
going to parties, you're experimenting with alcohol and boys and flirting. And so I definitely kind of took a more rebellious streak as a teenager. And I suffered through like, I went through a lot of kind of heavy things in high school, which I guess you could say kind of resulted in a spiraling behavior. And so a lot of that today has come out in my works and in my views and like just my morals on life. And because I, you know, I had more of a rebellious teenage years, by the time I got to college, I was already pretty fluent in like how parties went. (laughs) So I went to the University of Mississippi when I was 8, 19. And it was great for me because the previous high school that I had been to was is very small. You knew everyone's mom, you knew everyone's dad, you knew what they did for a living, you knew their dog's name. You just knew everything about everyone you went to school with. And and it was sort of family-like, but at the same time, it could be really toxic that everyone sort of knew everything about you. And there was just like no secrets, really. <laughs> so I went to college and I met in Oxford, Mississippi. And it is a, it's very well known for its sports and it's tailgating, and it's just a big party school. (laughs) So naturally, that was my priority. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, School was on the back burner, and I, I met a fabulous group of girls. There was about 12 of us my first year at university in the dorms where I was living, and I'm still great friends with these girls today, but we all ended up having to do an extra year of college because... (laughs) We just didn't study too well. But yeah, I mean, it was fun. And Ole Miss, the college is, you know, where I was studying for my art degree. I went and was studying to get my BFA. And my thesis revolved around body positivity, vulnerability. And my work today is symbolic of that as well. And then what else? I guess in my last year of college, we have a very long, like two-month break during the winter. It's almost like a summer, but in winter, it's very long. And so I decided most students will take an, a class during that time, like a quick class and get it out of the way. But I decided I was not going to do that. So I went traveling and one of my best friends at the time was living in Thailand and Cambodia. So she was like, well, why don't you come for a few weeks and let's go travel. And I had never really left the country. So I was like, all right, let's just do this. My mom dropped me off at the airport with my backpack and I got back from that trip and realized like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I had never spent much time around like culture or traveling. And I was completely amazed with the lifestyle. So when I got back, I had another year of school left. So I got two jobs. I was figure modeling for a local artist two days a week. And then I was working at a photo booth company. And that was my priority. Then I graduated and I went backpacking. It was supposed to be one year, but it ended up being almost four years. Majority of it was solo, but of course it's never like always solo. You meet travelers along the way, you're living in hostels. And so, yeah, it was I mean, I I don't ever like to say it was the best time of my life because I'm always, you know, wanting my future life to be better. But I guess you could say it was one of the most, I grew so much during that time. I learned so much about myself and I learned that I'm okay. Like I'm all right with being alone and I like my independency, that I met some 
really incredible people. After that, after the travel, the pandemic happened. And so I was back in the States actually visiting my family and I hadn't seen them in around two years since my previous visit. Yeah. Then the world started shutting down and I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I want to go back to South America and travel around. I don't want to be an adult yet, but I was 27 years old. It was like, okay, we have to like figure out life and money at some point. So when things sort of calmed down in New York, I made my way up here and yeah, I've been doing art for around two and a half years full time. And yeah, and that's where I am today. I live in an apartment in Brooklyn with my boyfriend and yeah, I'm all just figuring out adult life. <laughs> I'm doing the adult life. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's where I'm at now. So I'm just learning how to avenue or work through the different avenues of life I'm in now. You wrote your thesis around body positivity, you said. Yeah. What is your history with your body? With, I don't know, there's really a lot of different ways I'm thinking about how to explain it. But when I, I think the best way to describe it is, I've always been relatively small and petite and growing up, I was a gymnast and a ballerina and I spent majority of my time during the week at after school practices and was always pretty fit. With that being said, I was always pretty strict about like what I was eating, maintaining a certain weight. And at the time, I really didn't think of it as something as a bad thing. I didn't realize like it's not okay to like obsess and to be so strict with your diet that you know you're not enjoying your life and and it, things got more difficult as well with when I went to college and I wasn't dancing as much and I wasn't doing as much gymnastics because naturally when you stop working out as much you're going to put on weight and it's not that I put on so much weight that like it was unhealthy or concerning by any means, but you know, it was an adjustment. I was just growing into my like woman body. I was gaining more curves. My, I was, you know, my hips were getting a little bit larger and I wasn't used to that at all. I was so used to being stick thin and muscle. So I started, that's when all of like the body dysmorphia and stuff started showing up in my life. I would obsess over photographs. I would obsess in the mirror, take on like strict diets. Body dysmorphia is still something that I deal with today. And I think a lot of women do, but I didn't, you know, I think eating disorders can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. I don't think it's an eating disorder is strictly like what you eat or what you don't eat. I think it's a state of mind. I think and the obsession for me was the eating disorder because I, I was eating. It's just, I was obsessed with how much I was eating. I made sure to eat. It's just like everything was small. Everything was like on time. So yeah, I didn't realize like how damaging it was until the older I got. And, you know, the more you, the older you get, the more you grow into your body as a woman. And so I still face like that today, but um, I'm definitely improving. And with my work that I do now, it's helpful for me and it's helpful for the people who come in and participate in the work. And how did you come from or you were in a state where you were not so comfortable in your body. What made you do figure modeling? In college, I had my first figure modeling class. Actually, let me go back. When I was in high school, my freshman year of high school, so I was about 14 or 15, my teacher came up to me and said, 
gave me a different assignment than she gave everybody else in the art class. And she said, I want you to draw this. And so I said, okay. And it was a kind of like a Renaissance piece of these like angel, these naked angels. And she was like, I want you to just, just draw this. And I said, okay. So I went home, drew it, came back. And she was like, this is fabulous. And then I became obsessed with drawing portraits, life drawing. And I used to go to the library and find how-to books or books on anatomy. And I, you know, studied the bone structure. I, I learned how to draw like that. So when I got to college and I took my like first real proper life drawing class where we had a nude model come in and stand on stage, I was looking forward to it. And I thought it was I loved the act of drawing and art, but I loved the model on stage. And I don't know exactly what that model was feeling. They could be suffering with an eating disorder themselves and be on stage or be going through something traumatic, but they're on stage. And I just thought, wow, that seems like such a great way, like therapeutic way to, to break down all of the issues that you're, I'm, I was dealing with with my body. And I just thought it was so beautiful. So when I saw a job opening for a life model, I jumped on it immediately. And I had one place that would pay $15 an hour. And I had another another place where I would go and they would pay $25 an hour. And they were private artists from around town. And I really loved it. Even though I was insecure about so much of my body, I feel like it helped me be more in tune with it and like learn to love it. And it was always so exciting to get off the pedestal and go around to the camp on the other side and look at and see what the artist had made. And so after college, during my travels, figure modeling was a way for me to make money or take art classes for free. When I was living in Italy, Florence was like a 40 minute train ride. And I would see the locals taking art classes there. And actually most of them couldn't speak English. So when I tried to like take classes there, uh, I'm talking, you know, some really sweet older Italian man. And we're just like trying so hard to communicate. <laughs> but I basically said, I don't have money to take your class. And he taught every day. Uh, but I, how about I come on Wednesdays, I'll model for free. And then I can take the class on Friday. And that like evens out our pay. And he said, yeah, okay, let's do it. So I did that in Europe and also did it in Australia. And then I spent two years in Australia and my second year, which was in the last year of my traveling, I found a, a life drawing teacher gig where it paid like decent money. And I had just really been working in like cafes and you know, doing what I could to make money during my travels, but this was like a real job. And so I was pumped about it and we had models come in and, you know, there were lots of people taking the class and I just felt this connection with the, the, all the models that would come in because I had been in their place before and I respected them so much for getting on stage. But yeah, so that was my experience that during that time. And now I'm I'm my own life model and I have people come in and life model for me weekly. So yeah, it's, I love it. And did it really help you to gain more confidence in your body standing there? Yes. Um, of course I go through like peaks and valleys sometimes where the peaks is like, wow, I'm so proud of my body. Like I'm, I absolutely love this vessel of myself. And then, you know, you have days where it's like, oh, I wish 
I wish my calves didn't look like this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, just like the most ridiculous things. I wish my shoulders weren't like this, but really and truly like, yes, I'm more in touch with my body and the artwork that I make today. It's not as technical as life drawing is, but it's technical in its own way. It's I mean, I'm essentially painting the models that come in or painting myself with paint. And then I teach them how to lay onto the canvas and we make a composition and we create that piece of art together. And, you know, I have all kinds of models, all shapes and sizes, and people want to be a part of it for all kinds of reasons. People want to be a part of it because they get paid $15 an hour or people want to be a part of it because they find it beautiful and they want to be a part of a, what could be therapeutic process for them to break down these barriers and insecurities and to be vulnerable. And some people want to do it just because it seems fun. So you have people in there for all kinds of reasons. And it's just nice to know that people want to be a part of it. And social media and these days is just so horrific with, you know, what they consider real bodies. Everything is so edited and it can poison your mind on like what is normal and so even for me having all these different models coming in on a daily basis this is normal you know this is what normal is hips are normal big nipples are normal broad shoulders they're normal and you see the beauty in all of it and And all of the prints that are made from all different kinds of bodies, it it turns out gorgeous. I mean, every single one, it doesn't matter what your body type is, all of the art, it ends up just absolutely gorgeous. And more often than not, people want to come in to purchase a piece that they are, that they are a part of making. But do you really think it's just artists? Because if I think back when, when we were younger, when we were in our teenage years, the only thing that existed was magazines there was no social media back then Mm -hmm. or Facebook was just starting out or something I I got my Facebook account when I was 19 I think Mm -hmm. so social media wasn't really a thing and this whole posing of everyday people not at all so everything you saw was advertisements and magazines Mm -hmm. and highly photoshopped people so I must say like when I look at my social media feed I basically only have normal people there (laughs) but also because that's the people I follow and uh, that's what I did from the beginning on Uh I must say I have the feeling that there's a shift happening a change happening because because of social media because of these advocates of women who stood out with their real bodies after they had four children or something Mm -hmm. like that for example this account the birds papaya she just she had four children and she shows off her body how how it looks now she's an absolute stunning woman and I have the feeling that this really changed that we now on advertisements we see bigger women yeah we see all kinds of skin colors we see disabled people it's not just this highly curated magazine yeah I agree I I I totally agree with you on that I do think uh, yeah obviously it's like whatever your Instagram is catering to but I, I agree with you. And, you know, people often are always like, oh, we live in the worst of times. Like, this is the worst, you know, error. I wish we could go back to the good old days. It's like, 
do you really, really, you really want to go back not. there? Like, like, I don't know about like, you, but like, I'm pretty good. Like with where we are, we're not like, just, I don't know. People have just like this connotation that the past is always better. It's like, no, today we know more, we're achieving more. Yeah. I mean, sure. Every generation and every year we absolutely need to make improvements. And I agree there, even the Victoria's Secret models, this year, they um, had plus size models. And I think they even had someone who, I think maybe they were in a wheelchair. I can't remember. But yes, I definitely agree with you. I think a lot of it has to do with who you follow. Because I know that if I Google, or I know that if, let's say I look up on my Instagram right now, and I say Kim Kardashian, right? If I Google that, then my algorithm for the next like with the algorithm the next two days in my discovery it's going to be like chloe kim all these people you know all these little tight waists and big booties and even just depending on how much exposure you have to it and especially in our childhoods growing up that was kind of like all you saw i mean britney spears is a really great example of that the media just destroyed her after she had a kid you're too fat you're too skinny and a lot of her songs even say that it's like I think her song piece of me she talks about how the media is saying she's too skinny she's too fat and they just rip her apart and growing up my generation and in America and seeing all of that it was like a bandwagon Um, it's just like what you did and you just sort of picked people apart but I agree with you I do think things are improving but I think we have a long way to go still. That for sure. That for sure. And so you said when you create your art, when I saw it, I thought there were people coming in who wanted the experience to do that and then purchase the art. But that's actually not the case. You have. Yeah. I, I explain that. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so on my Instagram, basically, I'll reach out on my story or people reach out to me and say, hey, I'm looking for models this week, this time. If you want to come by, this is how it will play out. So people will message me based off that story or just message me whenever. And I'll explain to them before they arrive. Okay, you'll come in. I'll ask you to undress. I'll have a pre-planned drawing and composition out. And then you'll be painted. And then I'll teach you how to lay on the canvas. And then we'll make a print of you. And then you'll get up. You'll hop in the shower. You have a towel and a robe and slippers and all the things. And it's really nice. There's often got little snacks. We have music playing. There's always really interesting conversation happening. I mean, about anything and everything. Some people pour their hearts out and are crying. And some people were talking about a one night stand they had over the weekend. It's just like, (laughs) it's really all over the place, but it's a safe space for people to do that. It's a non-judgment-free space to be completely open and to be completely vulnerable in. And I think that's what draws people in. And over time, the longer that it's gone on, more people have reached out saying, I want to purchase a piece that has my body on it. So, you know, I've had people fly here to participate in this. I think it really means a lot to people to be a part of something that they're creating and something that is requires a lot of vulnerability by coming into my studio, undressing and trusting me, trusting the space and being a part of the art. Yeah. Some people just want to come in for the, for the fun of it and, or the, the emotional side of it. And some, because they just want to, they want to buy something they're a part of. 
There's the, and they're completely naked. Completely, yeah. Like no underwear. Yeah. You can actually see that. And I do couples as well. That's, a, that's fun. I've had several couples come in. Normally, I just do women. Well, I was for a while because I was originally working out of my apartment and I just felt more safe with women being here. But yeah, since I've moved into the new studio, I've had more men come in and more couples come in. And it's been really great. I've not had any negative experiences with men. They all have been super patient, which I was really nervous about at first. Honestly, I was nervous about a man that I didn't know coming into my studio. <laughs> and getting naked in it's front like, of you. Okay, this isn't an okay. opportunity. We're here to make some art and like yeah. deep dive. <laughs> but yeah, so it's been really great. That is wonderful. You have been backpacking, as you mentioned, for four mm -hmm. years. That really is quite a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a long time. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, they're, they're much more long-term travelers than we actually realize. Yeah, definitely. And also, a lot of women actually are solo traveling. What was your experience? Well, yeah, so I'd say... About 80% of it was solo. And it's interesting. The When it comes to like the long-term travel community, there's a lot of people doing it. But because you're traveling long-term and you're like, let's say you're traveling around Southeast Asia, I can't tell you the amount of times I would meet someone in India and then see them later in Australia. And we met for like one hour or like met at a bar or maybe took a hike together from like a hostel. I've had just like so many experiences like that. But when you happen to be around for so long in the backpacking world, you start to see other like long-term backpackers and really recognize each other. Or you know someone through someone and you have tons of mutual friends. So it's very interesting. But yeah, it was great. Like my, my, I started out in Europe, which was relatively easy. I was living, I started off living with a family as an au pair. And then on the weekends, I would travel and go off. And then after I left the family, stayed in Europe for a bit longer, jumped around. I went to Asia for a few months. Then I did a year in Australia. Then I went back to Asia for seven or eight months, back to Australia, South America. But I think one of the biggest things that I learned traveling was being alone and like being present is it's a gift that you have to like learn and achieve. It doesn't just come with ease. And it also, you have to be really tested. I find in my experience anyways, I had never been tested what like real loneliness and how that how that felt. And I think the biggest experience where I learned that was when I was in Nepal, I originally went there to do the Annapurna circuit for a two-week trek in the Himalayas. But when I showed up there, all I had was like a pair of hiking boots and bathing suits and like shorts and t-shirts. I didn't have any, I didn't have any clothing by any means to be in the Himalayas <laughs> So I show up and I'm like, okay, well, I, I got to get some stuff, but I couldn't afford really to buy anything. And I also couldn't take it with me to my next destination. So I had to convince all of these shop owners in this small town in the middle of freaking Nepal, I had to convince them to rent me my gear. And I was like, I was like, I need, I need shoes. I need socks. I need jackets and pants. I needed everything. I mean, from head to toe, I didn't have <laughs> gloves or hats or anything. So I went to three different shops and over the course of that time, 
I convinced them to rent me every single item of clothing. I was like using it like a business proposition. Oh, look, you know, you could sell this jacket for like 20 bucks, but you could rent it like 20 times. Yeah, you probably started something (laughs) new there. I mean, you were probably not the only one who ever had this issue. Yeah. So now. (laughs) So now here we are. And but the problem was, is that with the track, I started from that area, but I ended up on like the other side of Nepal. Oh, dear so I had to make my way back. And so after the two weeks went by, I got on the, I, I got back on a, uh, what did I take? A bus. I got on a few buses, made my way back. And when I got off the train, the first man that I saw was a man that I had had a conversation with and stayed at his homestay before I left originally and before I went and convinced all of these men to rent me the gear and he had asked me before I went on the track do you want to volunteer at a school at my niece's school and I said yeah sure like but I'm like I can't really think about it right now I'm heading out on this track if I see you when I'm back yeah I'd love to help and he was the first freaking person I saw when I get off the bus so we sat I returned all my gear we sat down and talked for a little while And then two days later, he put me on a bus and I went to this school about three hours away in Lamjung. And it was a very, very small, very poor little Nepalese village. And there was one tiny little school and I had had previous experience teaching. So I was like, this will be fine. Surely they've had other volunteers before. And, you know, surely like people will know some sort of English so I can no, nothing. Just no. absolutely nothing. <laughs> but, and, you know, that was actually the easiest part was the teaching and was the being around the kids. It was playful. It was fun. What was difficult was that no one in the village spoke English. And another thing that was difficult was I was only allowed to go to the school. That was it. I shared a bed every single night with the grandmother who was living at the, yeah, we shared a bed and her name was Ama. And, we had, you know, a dirt floor, there's no electricity, nothing. And she had terrible arthritis. Couldn't speak a lick of English. If I said hello, she would have no idea what I was saying. She was so sweet and she had terrible arthritis. And she was really a huge comfort to me during this time because we spent the most time together. And every night I would help her make her medicine And I would help her like rub it on her elbows and her knees and her joints. And, you know, not being able to speak in your own language. I mean, that's the, I only know English, but being around people who are speaking in another language around you constantly for over a month, you find yourself just kind of getting lost in your own thoughts and you like feel this sense of loneliness and frustration. And so that's sort of where I was. And even though it was an amazing experience, I've never felt lonelier. And so I started to really just kind of deep dive into meditation and really tried to learn to be present in every moment for, you know, many reasons, but mostly because I was really struggling and I wanted to, and I kind of felt like my mind was like going a little bit, like I couldn't talk, I couldn't express, and I couldn't even really leave the house unless I was going to school. I mean, just kind of like COVID quarantine, but like you can't speak, like you couldn't go anywhere and you were just like stuck to like one spot. But but that, that experience was really incredible for me. And I learned that getting through it 
you know, how strong and how powerful you can really take yourself as a human and you can accomplish way more than you can ever imagine. And so, yeah, it was great. I did a full time at the school and we did a big fundraiser for the school. Yeah. And then I left and I uh, headed out and went to, to Australia. But I always speak about that trip specifically because I think that was the most impactful moment during my travels. But yeah, you feel like a when you get through something like that, you feel like a superwoman. Yeah. Like everything yeah. else is fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And is meditation since then a regular part of your life? To be honest, it, it not like not daily by any means. Whenever I am like having a lot of anxiety, it is. I went through a pretty traumatic event in February 2020 where I was attacked by a man in a parking lot who tried to throw me into his car and basically take me. And so I suffer from a lot of PTSD from that. And at night, a lot of times my mind will drift and I become very anxious and very scared. And so it's not as much meditation as it is breath work. Breath work was introduced to me when I was in intense therapy after the attack. And I find it to be so incredibly helpful. And I recommend it to anyone, whether you have anxiety or you don't have anxiety, it puts you in a state of mind with your body where you just feel like in Zen. Yeah, I just, I really recommend it. But yeah, oftentimes when I'm struggling to go to sleep, I'll practice some breath work and it helps. Yeah, it's really great. I also do it sometimes. Mm -hmm. I heard it on the podcast and then I tried it out. I do it usually with Wim Hof for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's very interesting. And it's because when you're actively doing something, I heard once that women are better in a meditative state when they're moving. That's why, for example, yoga is a good thing for us mm -hmm. because uh, we're moving our bodies, but we can get into this meditative state instead of just sitting there. And also breath work is the same because you're doing something, yeah. you're really focusing on your breath at that time. So it's much easier to get into this meditative state. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, you know, I do, I, well, when I do breath work, I count at first and then over a period of time, my body is just doing it and not even really counting. And that's when I know like where I'm at with how I'm feeling and I'm actually super present. So I love that feeling. Like I'm super yeah. here in this moment right now. Yeah. What is also really interesting because you have this really free spirit around you. You traveled a long time. You're working as an artist. You're living as an artist. You also worked as an artist while you were traveling but you come from a really conservative family. How, how, how did they take that? How is it, <laughs> not just how did they take that. I mean, we can all imagine how they took that. But <laughs> I mean, the process for you separating yourself in that way from your family, because when you travel, you naturally change a lot. You change a lot as a person. You do not return as the same person as you left. It's a huge shift. It's for a lot of people, it's also okay, you're go, going to college, you change. But when you travel, you really change. <laughs> yeah, definitely. My family, so yeah, we come from more conservative and religious background. It's not by any means like super religious or anything, but my family do go to church. They identify as Christians. And where we, we are from uh, is known in the United States as the Bible Belt 
because it's a section of the U.S. that is more conservative and more religious. As a teenager, I identified with religion a lot more. Nowadays, I, I don't at all. A lot of my family members find that to be really sad. And I just don't get that because I would never be sad for them with religion being a part of their life. If you love it and you believe in it and it makes you feel good and it makes you a better person, I'm all for it. But it doesn't do that for me. So instead of being sad that I don't have that, like be happy that I feel great without it even. But yeah, it, it's been, you know, I grew up always sort of feeling like the black sheep of my community and town and school. Well, okay, let me start from here. When I was in middle school, I, I always had depression. I still have depression. But when I was a young girl, you know, mental health was not as talked about as it is today. And there was a lot of stigma still around the topic. So communicating that didn't always feel like a safe space to do it in because sometimes you'd get told, oh, we'll just be happy. You know, go throw some water on your face, put a smile on and like, you know, just get to it, girl. Um, And as a young girl going through a lot of depression, this made me bitter. This made me angry. And so I resulted in just being a really angry kid and an angry and angsty teenager. Yeah, I didn't always get the best approval from my family. I had quite a rebellious teenage years with partying. I didn't have the best reputation at my school either. I was a part of a group that we weren't by any means like relative to other high schools, a like bad or like super wild group of girls. But for my high school, particularly, we were considered the wild ones. But like any other normal school, it was what we were doing was completely normal. But I had experienced some bullying, some online bullying. And after that point, I got really upset and I got, I I started skipping school. I'll never forget my friend Allie calling me up and saying, Hey, I think you should get on Facebook. There are some girls that are uploading pictures of themselves online and they're making really ugly faces and they're pushing their boobs up. And they were talking about the boy that I had a crush on at school and they were tagging me in all of these photos. And I mean, it's like mean girls, but like, (laughs) what? Oh yeah. It was terrible. I lost it. You know, I, I was absolutely devastated and it didn't make me any better. It made me worse. It made me seek more validation. It made me more depressed. It made me angrier and bitter. And so my behavior only got worse in like all aspects of being a teenager and even a young adult. And with this reputation, being in a small town, your family gets really worried when they start hearing things. This is where it all sort of started to begin with my family kind of saying, I think our daughter's a little different. (laughs) I think she's a little different. (laughs) But yeah, I was. I think it was hard to handle because both of my parents, being from Alabama and growing up in a more conservative environment, they always, you know, played things by the book. They didn't really do much too different from anybody else that they went to school with. And then they have this daughter who's like going off the rails, not doing school, just, just not being great. So when I went off to school, I chose to go to a different school than most people go to from where I'm from. And it was the best decision I ever made because I was able to get away from my hometown and like the thoughts, like I was able to go in somewhere free where nobody knew me really. And just being able to be me and I changed my looks. I changed the music I listened to. I changed the way I dressed, the way I spoke. I mean, I just changed 
everything because it's what I wanted and who I was. Whereas before I was trying so incredibly hard to like not be talked about, to be validated and to like fit the part, I guess. Yeah, I just, I became me at 19 and that was really difficult for my family. I came home wearing different shoes and they're like, what are those? (laughs) But I will say all the travel was pretty difficult for them because number one, I don't know anybody from my hometown who has done any kind of extensive travel and they don't know anybody who's done extensive travel like that either. So it was a challenge for pretty, like, I mean, it was a challenge for me, but it was a real challenge for them. Most people, they meet their husband in college or right out of college, they go home and by they're married at 24, 25, and then baby immediately. And that just wasn't the route I took. And that's fine. You know, I think my family, my family over the last few years has definitely been incredibly supportive. But at first, it was a very intense struggle. I think they thought she's going through a phase. She's just going <laughs> through a phase. But I think now they realize, like, this oh. is me And we have to learn, you know, like, this is her, you know, we, but I think they love and respect me. I mean, I know they love and they respect me for it now. But I think it was definitely an adjustment for my family. And yeah, as far as like political views and religion goes, we're definitely on opposite ends of the spectrum, but it's just not something we talk about. It's not worth the fight. I struggled so long to get along with my family when I first started kind of making my transition into like who I am in early college. And I want to keep that friendship and I want to keep that closeness. And so when it comes to like larger topics, it has to be pretty specific, but I'm not here to change anyone's mind on what they believe in when it comes to religion. If you want to ask me what my opinion is, I'm going to answer it, but don't challenge me to believe something else unless you want to challenge me and I accept and same vice versa. But yeah, I'm up for a good debate now, but like as long <laughs> as it's all, like as long as it's all, you know, it's all good and all both parties are in for it. Yeah. To spiral back a little bit to your art, how did this idea come to your mind? Because it's pretty unique. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it before. How did this come up? Well, this technique has, it's been around for like the years, like Yebs Klein was, I think like the first person that I know of anyways, to do this back in like the 60s, I think. But no, there's not many artists around that, that do this. I had always sort of, I mean, we do that with kids. You yeah, know, yeah. When, when they're first born, like and their, their feet, feet. <laughs> yeah, and their ass. And <laughs> yeah, I did that with my nephew. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We actually have one of my partner's niece. She's got a footprint on a piece yeah. of paper. It's got <laughs> antlers on it, and that was her Christmas card. They made it into reindeer. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I don't know exactly. I'd always had the idea in the back of my mind, but it was just as simple as like, okay just go for it. Right. But for some reason, I just like kept it in the back of my mind for a long time and didn't get around to it. And then one day when I was, this is about two years ago, I met this artist named Kristen Georgie. She has some beautiful, beautiful work. And I super respect her as an artist and a person. And when we met, I was telling her about my idea and she just said, just fucking do it. Like that was literally what she said to me. And I was like, you know what? Like what the fuck is stopping me from just like 
getting a piece of paper, putting some paint on my body and laying down. Like, that's it. And then like, I, if I don't like it, I never have to do it ever again, but like, let's just do it. Yeah. And so I did. Yeah, absolutely loved it. I made, I think like four or five pieces the first night that I tried it. And I was just like, wow, this is so freaking cool. I just, I was in love with the process of it. I was in love with how intimate I was being with the paint and with the paper. Yeah, I love that even though I was naked and laying on this painting, it wasn't, it didn't look super sexy. It wasn't sexualized really. It was just a body and, but it was so beautifully printed on the paper. So yeah, that's how that idea came about. And yeah, I've just been doing it ever since and started posting about it and yeah, people wanted to get, get amongst it. So, uh, and I'm so happy they do. And now you made a living out of it and you're working as an artist in New York. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the dream for so many people, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really funny because like, it's the dream, but it's so funny because when I first met my boyfriend, his parents were like, what do you do? I was like, oh, I'm an artist. And then yeah, the, next part, the next part comes like, oh, well, what kind of art do you do? It's like, oh, I'm a figurative painter. Like, oh, how do you like, how do you make these? It's like, well, I have strangers come into my studio and they get naked and then I paint them. And like, so it's always really, especially when I go back home, right? And I'm talking to my grandma and she's like, oh, what, what do you mean you have people that come over and get naked? I'm like, yeah. Anyways, I just like sometimes like when I'm speaking to like a much older generation, it's just easier to be like, yeah, I, I paint people. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's I'm definitely like very blessed. I, if you had told me even like a year ago that this is it, like, I just feel that I know that this is my purpose and where I'm supposed to be. And it's a really incredible feeling. Yeah. Do you think you will get into traveling again at some point? Yes, absolutely. One of the things is I want to travel a little differently than how I used to travel. Well, I was like super poor then. And by no means am I rich now. <laughs> but you have but, an income. Um, yeah, but I have like a, I have an income. But when, then, you know, taking a road trip for two weeks on $500 was like, yeah, whatever. It'll be fine. Now I, I can't imagine, but I'm so career driven right now that I don't want to step away from this too much because I'm so blessed to have this right now and so blessed to love it as much as I do. But I would like to travel for like weeks at a time to a destination and bring my art with me. My boyfriend and I might be going to Mexico for a few weeks in the near future. He's working on some visa stuff, but it, if it all works out, we can go down there for a month. Supplies are gen down there will be even cheaper, but I can just set up work really anywhere and I can be my own model. And I'd like to travel like that for a little while, you know, wherever it be. And I, I still love the idea of going to hostels and like actually backpacking. I desire that kind of energy and that, that like wild. Community also. Yeah. Independence. It's, it's amazing. And my boyfriend is, he's traveled a lot around Europe, but he's never been like proper backpacking. So I'm really excited to share that with him. But yeah, I absolutely do. I think we're sort of in weird times right now, but I absolutely want to get back on the road. Maybe just like not sleeping in a hostel bed for five dollars a night with like 15 other people in the room 
but yeah. I might like get a private room now. <laughs> the same issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, definitely like have some plans, but we'll see. Yeah. It just all has to work out with how the world is right now. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. To wrap up this amazing conversation, I just have two more questions for you. Do you have a okay. female role model? Yes. So what well I have I feel like that answer changes all the time. Like it can it can change from like week to week. But right now I've really been in, I've always been like super amazed by Sally Mann. Uh, Sally Mann is a photographer. She's best known for her series Intermediate Family. That came out in the late 80s, early I think it came out in the early 90s, but basically her series of work is about her, it revolves around her children. So she I believe it was in Virginia was where their farm was. Her children would just like kind of run around the farm as like, you know, four or five, six year olds. They'd be in dress up clothes or they'd be running naked and swimming in the lake. And just like all kids, they'd break an arm or they'd scratch their knee. And she would capture all of these super intimate moments that are normally just shared with your family. But she received a lot of backlash for it. And the photos are absolutely beautiful and they really do bring you back to this place of your inner child and she received a lot of backlash saying that she was negligent with her children because she was photographing them when you know their knee was cut or when they were or that it was por child pornography because she was taking photos of her son swimming in the lake but you know he was nude and he's a child and all of this is with film as well film photography, but they just didn't see as, like the side of it that she saw and that I think most of the world saw just this beauty and innocence and vulnerability and being able to capture a moment the way she did. And she, she didn't back down. She stayed with her gut and uh, she kept photographing. I actually met her in Oxford, Mississippi one time and I went up to her and I almost cried. And I said, I just want you to know, I was like, I just want you to know that I, I was like, my teacher gave me your book when I was 15 and I have been obsessed with it ever since. <laughs> and then I went to sit down and listen to her speak. This is at a big bookshop in Oxford, Mississippi. And I was sitting next to this girl who I thought looked pretty familiar. Turns out it was her daughter, Virginia, who is in some of the most famous photographs of Sally Mann. And actually, if you Google, you probably would recognize some of her photos. But Virginia in this one photo is she's playing dress up and she's outside and she's like holding a baby doll and wearing her mom's clothes. She can't be older than like four, but she has a candy cigarette and she's posing it with it like she's smoking. And... It's just the most gorgeous photo, but like she received a lot of heat over that kind of stuff. Oh, you're letting your children smoke. And like, why would you? So I really respect her. I respect what she's done with her art. She stuck to her gut and she just said, fuck it. And she kind of went with, a, and she went with a very vulnerable side. It's her family. And so, yeah, I have mad respect for her. Yeah, <laughs> that is awesome. And if you could leave a message to all the women in the world, what would it be? I think don't underestimate yourself. The cliche of saying, you know, have no regrets, but like really have no regrets. All the things that you've wanted to do, you can do them. And we are way more powerful as a person because we are empathetic, because we, taking it back to the first quote, how Jackie Perry said, because we are everything that is comfortable, because emotions make us who we are, it doesn't make us unstable, it makes us stronger. And as women, we have to be the stronger sex 
to survive and to go on. So I just think just say fuck it more often and don't ever doubt yourself because you're way more powerful than you'll ever know. I needed to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you for this wonderful conversation. Pimp yourself out. Where can everybody find you? Instagram is the best. I'm I'm currently working on a website that'll be coming up, but Instagram at camillehunt.art. That's C-A-M-I-L-L-E-H-U-N-T dot art. But yeah, that, you can see all of my stuff there. Yeah, and I will link it in the show notes so everybody okay, can just perfect. look it up. Awesome. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute bliss. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to know what your biggest takeaway is. Just share this episode to Instagram into your stories and tell me what you thought and I will reshare your profile of course make sure to follow the heal rise shine podcast on instagram at heal rise shine for more about body positivity and eating disorders and if you like this episode please leave a comment and review on apple podcast or on spotify or just share it in your instagram story and make sure to tag me so i can send you some love as well thank you so much and have a wonderful day (music) 